Well, it's good to sing that song again. It's been a while since I've sung it. We used to sing it with our family uh, in the evenings. We would sing hymns together. And I remember to this day how off-key I used to be when I tried to sing that song. And everybody laughed at me and mocked me. But it brings back uh, such fond memories. God is faithful, and because of that, our souls can be at peace. How many of you would agree that some sins are worse than others? They're typically not the ones we think are worse. There are some sins that are known today as respectable sins. And there are other sins that are heinous and ugly. And we tend to point the finger at those and say that those are the worst of all. But there is one sin that stands above all the others, and we're going to look at that today, and it's not probably what you think. Truth of the matter is, I sinned greatly by not sending my outline ahead of time so you have no notes to write on. That's my bad. But we've been talking about the sin of partiality. Last time we looked at that in James chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at that again this morning uh, in a little bit different light. But it's all part of the same message. This is part 2. And so we want to see three reasons why we are not to be holding the faith in a judgmental way. We are not to play favorites. Those who are in the faith should not play favorites. And last week we saw uh, three reasons why we were not told the faith in a judgmental way. And, and those three reasons, just by way of review, are, are these. Uh, playing favorites, number one, assaults the glory of Christ. If you uh, look at verse 1, um, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Uh, we said last time that it's, it's in apposition there, the, the language, and what it literally reads is, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Jesus is being compared there to the, the Shekinah glory, and, and showing partiality is a du- direct assault on that glory of Christ. Secondly, we said that playing favorites asserts evil motives. Uh, we looked at verses 2 to 4, and, and incorrectly judging people based on externals reveals evil motives within our hearts. We look at the outward appearance of somebody and, and uh, decide how we're going to treat them based on those outward appearances. And James says that's evil. Those are evil motives. And third, Uh, Playing favorites assumes incorrect conclusions, verses 5 to 7. There were three rhetorical questions there in the text, and they all three expose sort of a misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. And that is that God has blessed the poor of this world, uh, and it's the rich who are supposed to humble themselves uh, before God. And so uh, God is most glorified in the exaltation of the poor. 
And that leads us to where we are today, James chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. Let me give a read of the text. And again, we're going to see three more reasons not to play favorites. Starting in verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, He has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So three more reasons we're not to hold the faith in partiality. We're not to play favorites. Uh, Number one, playing favorites insults the priority of God. Uh, Verses 8 to 9, you see that there. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So verses 8 and 9, if you look at the text, they are two first-class conditional statements. The way they're worded is a little, um, it throws you off on this. But the idea here is that uh, first-class conditional statements basically are assumed to be true. Okay? So verse 8 would be translated then, since you are fulfilling the royal law. Right? And verse 9, but since you show partiality as well. You get the idea there? It's set up as a contrast. You're fulfilling the royal law, but there are occasions as well when you're showing partiality. And so on the one hand, you're doing well. On the other hand, you're convicted as transgressors. It's intended to be a contrast. The royal law, James says, is being broken. But uh, because... Because James uses this word, uh, this uh, phrase, a royal law, we need to we need to kind of understand what that means. Uh, there's several possibilities in in here, but uh, I think in the context, it seems to mean, uh, based on all the evidence, and I won't go through all that. I just don't have the time. But it's the law that stands above, if you will, or behind all the other laws. It it is the royal law. It is the pinnacle. It is the peak of all the laws. And so to violate this law is a worse sin than others. And so what is that law? That's what we want to ask ourselves. And he tells us right in the text, it's the 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and, and you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's honing in on, right? In Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, Jesus was asked about this, remember? What is the greatest law, Jesus? What is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Everything hinges on these two commands. And the first is to love God, and the second flows out of your love for God, to love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13.9, the Apostle Paul reiterated this truth. He said, for this... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said also in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the royal law. This is the one that stands above all the others. It's the king of the laws. To violate this law is to violate the whole law. It encapsulates, if you will, how believers are to treat other people. And, and as I said, it finds its roots in your love for God. Now, in the Old Testament, the Shema, uh, the, which is just the Hebrew word for listen um, or hear, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, right? You remember that from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9? That is the Shema. That was considered the greatest commandment. But what Jesus did was he took the whole rest of the law and he summed it up under this one saying. And he said, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the royal law. And faith in Christ and love for neighbors are inextricably linked. So in those instances where they were They were being obedient to the royal law. They were doing well. Because they were prioritizing what God prioritizes, and that is love for others. And this is how they were to be hearers and doers of the word in the context. Remember, this goes back to 119. This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, right? And so this whole section is, is what it means to be a doer of the word. Quick to hear and do the word of God. Uh, showing partiality in the text is a, it's a present verb. Uh, it's the same as over in 2.1. 
and it's translated as personal favoritism. And James 2 is the only place in the New Testament where this word is found. And it's a compound word we said last week uh, that came over from the Hebrew phrase panim nasa, which literally means to lift up the face on a person or to, to be somebody who judges people based on their externals. That's what the text means. That's what the phrase means. And James is much more direct here than in the previous section we looked at. He says, since they were doing this, they were literally doing a sin. They were literally doing a sin, and they were convicted by the law as transgressors. They had wandered off the path of God, and they were in sin. There are a few places in the New Testament where there are direct statements like this, but this is one of them. If you are doing this, you are transgressing the law of God, and you are in sin. To show partiality, to play favorites, is to sin against God. And it's to insult his priority. So for James, breaking the law through one act of favoritism meant they were guilty of sin as though they were not believing in the mercy of God. As I said before, genuine faith and love for your neighbors are inextricably linked. You were in sin. You were at your ugliest, as Seth prayed earlier. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God showed you what? Mercy and grace and compassion and love and forgiveness. And beloved, that's what we as believers are to be like. All other transgressions pale in comparison to this one because it somehow embodies the entire purpose of the law toward others. Right? Even the Ten Commandments, we know, the ten words of the law, the first four commandments relate to God, right? The other six relate to who? Others. How we're to treat others. And the Ten Commandments summarize the whole law. But beyond that, Jesus took that and boiled it down to just two. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's at the core, it's at the heart of the Old Testament. And beloved, if you mess up on this one, you've messed up big time, James says. If you show partiality toward others and you judge them on externals alone, you stand guilty as a transgressor of the law of God. And I'm not talking about the Mosaic law. I am not a legalist. I'm talking about those small L, the law of God. So what does love toward our neighbors look like? That's what everybody asks. So I have a list here for you of seven things that I've adapted from a book by Jerry Bridges called The Gospel for Real Life. 
And when I read this, I was terribly convicted. Terribly convicted, and I hope you will be as well. What does it mean to love your neighbors? Well, he says, among other things, it would mean, number one, you cherish for your neighbors the very same love that you bear toward yourself. You cherish for your neighbors the very same love that you bear toward yourself. And how do we love ourselves? Quite a bit. Quite a bit, right? See, the problem is that it's not that we don't love ourselves enough and we need to grow in our self-esteem. The problem is that we love ourselves way too much. You realize that, don't you? Amen. Second, in your dealings with them, with your neighbors, you never show selfishness, I can't say that word very well, selfishness, irritability, peevishness, or indifference. Ouch. (laughs) Right in the heart. In your dealings with them, you never show selfishness, irritability, peevishness, or indifference. Third, you take a genuine interest in their welfare and seek to promote their interests, honor, and well-being. One thing I noticed about this list as I went through it, by the way, is that it's not passive. Right? You're not waiting for the opportunities to come to do these things to your neighbor. They're active verbs, right? You go to them and you do these things for them. You take a genuine interest in their welfare. You seek to promote their interests. You honor them and you're concerned for their well-being. Fourth, you never regard them with a feeling of prideful superiority. Nor do you ever talk about their failings. Five, you never resent any wrongs they do to you, (laughs) but instead are always ready to forgive. Sixth, you always treat them as you would have them treat you. And finally, to paraphrase 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 5, you are always patient and kind, never envious or boastful, never proud or rude, never self-seeking, You are not easily angered, and you keep no record, even in your mind, of wrongs done to you. Is that a tough list or what? How many of you are 100% on that? Yeah, that was a very difficult read for me. I, I felt very convicted. But that's what it means to love your neighbor. As yourself. 
And that's just a sampling. I'm sure there's more. So playing favorites insults the priority of God. God considered others before himself in that Christ assumed flesh, right? He came to us when we were at our worst. He assumed the posture of a servant. He submitted himself to death on a cross. All for us, for others, right? It's the gospel of otherness. And that's what we are to be like towards others. So to show partiality, to miss on this one that embodies the entire law of God is to miss big time. How many of you ever tried shooting arrows? Yeah. This is the one that goes off over the fence onto the neighbor's roof, right? It doesn't even come near the target. If you miss on this one, you've completely gone off field. And you are a transgressor of the law. Second, playing favorites ignores the problem of the law. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all of it. Right? For he who said, by the way, who's the he there? It's, it's God, it's right, his spirit who authored scripture. That's why it's a capital H in your Bibles. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Notice the phrase transgressor of the law is here as well as in the first verse, right? Or the verse two. If you, you're a transgressor of the law if you commit partiality, but you're also a transgressor of the law if you commit murder or adultery. He's comparing the three. And it's an interesting text. James sets it up as though there are two kinds of law keepers, right? There's one law, but there's two kinds of law keepers. And also there's a contrast between the whole law and all of its individual components. And look at the language. He says, the whole law yet stumbles in one point. And what does that mean? Guilty of all, right? As Thomas would say, that's an exact number. If you commit one sin, let's say it's partiality, what have you done? You've broken the whole law. Not just the sin of partiality. You've broken the entire thing. It's kind of like a sheet of glass. Say your car windshield, right? We live in Idaho. Say a rock hits your front windshield. What happens? It, it, the whole integrity of the windshield breaks, right? And it fractures. And, and you get this big crack before you know it all the way across your window. And sometimes a spider web effect. Right? That's the law. If you commit one sin, 
It's like that rock hitting your front windshield, and the whole law's integrity has now been violated. That's what James is saying. Lawbreakers are under obligation to keep the whole law, but they, they have not, and they cannot. So the first kind of lawbreaker is, is those that, that truly understand the gospel of Christ. Right? They keep the law of God by faith in acts of Christian love and service toward others. They keep the law by faith in Christ. That's the first set of lawbreakers. And, and you can mess up, but you're, you're showing love toward others and you're merciful and you're a merciful person. And so you'll be, uh, the text says, judged under that paradigm. But there's the second kind of law keeper, and that's the person that tries to keep the law in all of its minutiae. This would be a legalist, right? They, they keep the law or attempt to keep the law in all of its minutiae, and so they'll be judged by it in all of its particulars. And that's what it means to put yourself under law. If you put yourself under law instead of mercy then you're judged by law, not by mercy. You understand? There's two kinds of law keepers. The, the irony is if they try to keep the law in all of its particulars, but fail to love their neighbor, they've missed the point, the entire point of the law. And that's why it says in the Greek, he has become of all guilty. It's for emphasis. And this is a perfect verb here, by the way. You could understand it to mean this person stands as guilty of the whole. It's a perfect state. Their past action started, but it's ongoing results in the present. They're... They're, they stand as being guilty of the law. And notice James appeals to two of the biggest sins that one could possibly think of here to make his case, right? Adultery and murder. His point is this. You may not violate both of them, but if you have violated one, you're guilty of both. You're guilty of both because the law is a unit. The law of God is a unit. So by trying to keep the law in the particulars, see, folks think they won't be judged by it that way. Right? We've done evangelism. You knock on the door and why do you think God should let you into heaven is the question. And, well, I'm basically what? I'm basically a good person. I haven't killed anybody. Right? I haven't committed adultery. Okay, you're a great person, so on that basis, God should let you in heaven, right? Wrong answer, right? Wrong answer. You get the door prize. You get what's in the small box. What's behind curtain number two, right? You chose poorly. That's not the answer. 
See, they think they're fulfilling the requirements of the law, but they've missed the target altogether. And so they'll be judged according to law. The New American Commentary says this, Wisdom, the law, and love are inseparably bound together. Any separation of these three is the result of calculated self-deception that looks for man's favor rather than God's and withholds the love that is due to one's neighbor. Calculated self-deception. So it begs the question, who is the law for? Right? 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 9, he says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, in other words, those who are in Christ by faith, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That's who the law is for. Well, well, why? Well, because they need some sort of restraint externally, right? We see that in our culture today, right? These people that are committing violent crimes are being released into society just so they can sin again. And the law is for them. It's not for believers. For believers in Christ, why is the law there? To reveal sin. It reveals sin so that we might turn from it. See, it was a schoolmaster for us. It it was that thing, that fence around us that kept us in, in bounds, if you will. But now that the law has been internalized through the indwelling spirit, the law is not for us. Verse 11, James 2, he said, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. See, the law is meant to reveal sin. That's the lawful use of the law, if you will. But if one puts themselves under the law then they're obligated to keep it and all of its individual commands. And I thought this quote was really um, helpful, I guess, uh, really relevant. It's out of the New American Commentary, and, and this quote says, Sin is never a question of breaking a single command. Listen to this closely, okay? Sin is never a question of breaking a single command, 
but of violating the integrity of the whole law. So it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what sin you commit. What you've done is like the Twin Towers when the airplane struck them. You've violated the integrity of the whole thing, and it's going to collapse. It's not just that you committed this sin here of immorality or that, you know, you committed this sin here of anger. When you commit that sin, you ruin the whole thing. The whole thing loses its integrity and collapses like a house of cards. But the person who is in Christ by faith doesn't need law to understand the difference between right and wrong. Got the Spirit indwelling you, right? That's far superior to an external law. You don't need a law to tell you it's, it's wrong to, to abuse your spouse. You've got the indwelling Spirit, right? The Apostle Paul said over in Galatians, uh, well, to summarize, basically, Uh, the one who seeks to keep the law breaks it. But the one who walks in the Spirit becomes a doer of the law. If you were to summarize Galatians 5, that's what it would say. If if you try to keep the law, you're going to break it every time. But if you walk in the Spirit, you become a doer of the law. And what does James exhort us to be? Hearers and doers of the word, right? We don't need a law to tell us to love our neighbor. Do you? No. It should come as a result of your love for God through his indwelling presence, and because of what he has done for you. Right? You don't need a law for that. To know God is to to understand his priorities. So playing favorites insults those priorities. Playing favorites ignores the problem of the law. And third, see how I'm doing on time? Playing favorites incurs the principle of judgment. Verses 12 to 13. James says, so. When you hear so, it's kind of like, okay, we're going to summarize now. So, so what have we learned, class? Right? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Speak and act are both present tense verbs. Um, Ongoing present, meaning you should be doing them all the time. They should be part of your lifestyle. Speaking and acting, and that goes back to 119 as well. Right? James is also looking forward, by the way, sort of giving you a little telegraph to chapter 3, which is about the sins of the tongue. 
speak and act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. By the way, in the original Greek, there's a word in there. It's mello, M-E-L-L-O, in the text. And in Greek, it means about to be. And they've uh, smoothed out the translation because here we are 2,000 years removed. James thought the judgment was coming, his first epistle, right, in the New Testament. And so the word mellow is about to be. James saw impending judgment because this was an early letter. And he said over in 5.9, what? Jesus is where? He's right at the door, beloved, and he is going to judge. And judgment runs through this letter uh, several times he uses the word judgment. It's on the forefront of his mind. For James, he was saying, listen, judgment is about to come. Clean up your act. Jesus is right at the door, and Jesus is the judge. (laughs) He's the one who's going to judge. So in light of the previous verses, James left the church with a precept to follow. Basically, it's this. Conduct yourselves as those who are about to be judged by the law of liberty. And that's the second time he's used this. Look over at 125. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, and then in opposition he redefines it and says the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Right? It's the perfect law. The law of liberty. And what is that law of liberty? In the context... Mercy. If you act mercifully toward others, you are abiding by the perfect law of liberty. It's the whole law for believers should not be cumbersome to keep if we're walking in the Spirit, right? Because we're loving God and we're serving God. And that should, that should be enjoyable, right? It should not be cumbersome to, to obey God. But if you, if you look at it as a honeydew list of things I've got to accomplish in order to please God and make him like me more, then you've missed it. You've missed it. Listen, sinners who are saved by grace are not treated as we might expect them to be treated. Right? We have offended a holy God with our sin, and yet, what did we get? We didn't get what we deserved. We got what we didn't deserve, mercy and grace. That's the gospel itself. I'll show you an example of this. 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 14. 
This is the Apostle Paul talking. And he said, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. See, Paul was not treated as a persecutor, a blasphemer, or a violent aggressor. He was shown mercy, and it changed him completely, and it changed him forever. God did not judge Paul how he should have been judged. He showed him mercy and grace. This is what God expects from his people. This is what it means to be a doer of the word. This is what it means to love your neighbor. We are to show mercy, grace, and love to our neighbors. And love and mercy define the law of liberty. As a believer, you've been freed from the constraints of the law, right? So don't delude yourselves now into thinking that law-keeping is the answer here. Don't love your neighbor because it's commanded in the law. Love your neighbor because you love God and you're filled with His Spirit. And you've been shown mercy and you've been shown love and you've been shown grace in Christ. Now act like somebody who's going to be judged under that law of liberty and freedom. Well, you're probably asking at this point, well, who's my neighbor? Right? Isn't that what Jesus drove people to? Well, if that's what I'm supposed to do, then who's my neighbor? It's funny you should ask that question. Jesus was asked that very question over in Luke uh, chapter 10. Why don't you turn there? Howdy, neighbor. Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. See, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. They're trying to trip Jesus up with this question. Right? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, well, here it is, the door of evangelism, right? <laughs> you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, Listen, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Notice that 
it's a Levite and a priest who ignore the man completely in his time of need, right? Verse 33, but a Samaritan, somebody who the Jews hate, was on a journey and came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He took care of him himself. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. That's like paying his hospital bill, right? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So who's your neighbor? And what kind of neighbor are you supposed to be? One who shows compassion and love and mercy. Verse 13, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you're going to resort to judging others unjustly, if you're going to play favorites, if you're going to judge them based on externals, then you can expect that this is how you will be judged by God. One author said this, Mercy is something we extend, not just something we intend. Believers should show mercy. And and the example given in Scripture, and this is not the only possibility, but who are we to show mercy to? The poor, the downtrodden, the widows, the orphans, right? The ones that society looks at and says they're worthless. See, we should be gracious and caring because we have been shown compassion and kindness in the gospel. So we're to judge others as we wish to be judged ourselves. And whatever paradigm you operate under, is what you can expect when your time before God arrives. This, uh, this phrase, has shown no mercy. Uh, literally, it says, to the one who has not done mercy. And it's, uh, it's a, what's known as a proleptic aorist. It's a big word, right? A proleptic aorist. Uh, Aorist is primarily past tense. Proleptic has the idea of being in the future, but looking backward. That's weird, huh? Greek has a lot of nuances, and this is one of the the more unusual ones. But it's looking at a future event as though it's past. And so basically the writer is envisioning standing at the judgment. James is, is standing at the judgment, and he's looking backward over life. And he's saying what he sees is that the judgment at that time will be unmerciful to those who have showed no mercy in this life. 
They're a little bit scary. It irks me a little bit. It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. But if you are a merciful person toward others, you can expect what? Mercy. You can expect to be judged mercifully. However, if you want to condemn other people for every offense and you want to put yourself and them under your law, then you can expect what? A judgment without mercy yourself. See, if you've shown no mercy in this life, you shouldn't expect any in return in the judgment from God. This, uh, this word triumphs, some translations say exults. Uh, the word literally means it boasts against. So in the judgment, those who are merciful will be judged according to the mercy they've shown. And in this way, mercy uh, boasts against or triumphs over judgment. Right? You don't face the judge as somebody who's disobeyed. You face the judge as somebody who's shown mercy. Scott Halfman, uh, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, he says, He who has had mercy on us will be the one to judge us. With Christ's own righteousness and merciful character being the essential criterion for evaluation. So those who have received mercy in Christ will be merciful to others, receiving mercy from Christ on the day of judgment. That kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Uh, This uh, Puritan Thomas Adams, he says, He that demands mercy and shows none ruins the bridge over which he himself is to pass. So three more reasons not to show partiality, right? Playing favorites insults the priority of God. Playing favorites ignores the problem of the law. Playing favorites incurs the principle of judgment. There was a a Puritan by the name of David Brainerd, a missionary, uh, famous, and uh, he was a missionary to the Native Americans, and I'll just conclude with this, in the 1700s. And his story is far and widely known. Jonathan Edwards wrote his, his sort of his biography. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' daughter, Jerusha, took care of uh, David Brainerd when he was dying from tuberculosis at the age of 29. And uh, they were engaged, and she was buried next to him a year later. But this man rode 3,000 miles on horseback to minister to Native Americans in the 1700s. You can imagine what that was like, right? He risked life and limb to love his neighbor. And in this quote of his, I just wanted to read to you. He says, I care not where I go or how I live or what I endure so that I may save souls. When I sleep, I dream of them. When I awake, they are first in my thoughts. No amount of scholastic attainment, of able and profound exposition, of brilliant and stirring eloquence can atone for the absence of a deep 
impassioned, sympathetic love for human souls. How far does your love for your neighbor extend? Let's pray.